Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of August 2021 and this is episode 220. This will be our last episode this month as we take our usual annual summer break. We will return on the 6th of September with normal service. But on today's podcast, I talk to David Spruce, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Wolverhampton. David is examining David is examining the training and recruitment of Royal Flying Corps personnel during the First World War. He spoke to me from his home in Shropshire. David, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, thank you for having me. I've come to military history a little late. I worked in commerce and industry for around 25 years, then had a complete epiphany and a complete change by running a small holding with pig, sheep, etc. And the latter gave me the chance to study something I was actually interested in. So how did I come to military history? Well, like many people, I suppose it was my father who got me into it at an early age. We've tramped many miles on the Western Front from the Channel Ports to the Meuse are gone and back again, I guess. He always said he wanted me to be interested in the Great War and not obsessed. Um, so I'm afraid I've let him down there because I've just finished uh, an MA in Britain in the First World War and now I'm researching in it for a PhD. So can you tell us what your PhD is about? I can. Uh, the current title is Recruiting and Training the Royal Flying Corps, Finding and Preparing the Men Who Would Fight Britain's War in the Air. So there are two parts, recruitment and training. Obviously, they're intrinsically linked if you want a good functioning service. So I'm looking at the how. How did the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps, find its men? How did it train them? And then who they were? Uh, where did they come from? What were their backgrounds? Why did they join the flying service, etc.? And most importantly of all, in fact, is probably how did, how did it change? How did the process change? Yes. But how did the people change? Was a recruit of 1918 anything like a recruit of 1914? And were they trained differently later in the war? So why do you think this research is important? Well, there hasn't really been a study of, of a men of the flying corps so in that respect it's new ground uh, the historiography of the first world war in the air is still dominated by the so-called flying ace fighter pilots as we would probably know them today in 1918 for example only eight percent of the men of the royal flying corps or the raf as it had become by then were actually pilots or observers so only eight percent of the men would have been in an aircraft so who on earth were the other 90 percent and if i give you one example of, of just how the historiography has come to be dominated by the ace. James McCudden, BC, probably the most famous pilot in the Royal Flying Corps, actually started his career as an air mechanic and was one of the few pilots to work his way through the ranks to become uh, an officer and a pilot. He wrote his own memoir in 1917 and he did that with the help of two people, one who was a journalist, the mother of one of his best friends, and the other was a gentleman called C.G. Gray, who was the editor of an important periodical back then called The Aeroplane. Now, McCudden, unfortunately, died early in 1918 and it was left to Gray to publish his memoir for him and Gray removed all of the anecdotes and most of the information related to McCudden's early career as an air mechanic because quite simply he didn't believe the public would be interested in any of that stuff and left it very much uh, about his days as a fighter pilot so that, that gives you some indication of how the historiography has come to be dominated by such tales and finally I, I want to address what I believe are some stereotypes and myths that continue to be attached to the Flying Corps. So let's start 
with some of those myths and uh, legends around the, sort of the RFC um, and things about the 20 minuters and half of all pilots being killed in training. Is there any any truth to these myths? Well, you've got it. I mean, I mean in general, large parts of the historiography uh, contain caricatures. I mean, you've only got to think of Lord Flashheart in Blackadder 4 and you're, you're probably hitting the bill. Um, they're portrayed as posh public schoolboys. They've got a penchant for fox hunting. Most of them are teenagers barely out of their schools. They're sent to fight with very few flying hours. And as you just said, training was deadly. There are claims in the historiography that the UK alone killed more than half of its pilots in training. And myths don't have to equal lies and falsehoods, of course. They can off- they often contain a smidgen of truth, uh, but the nuances got lost along the way. And that's certainly the case with the Flying Corps. So yes, recruit- recruitment-wise, in the early days, the Flying Corps had been made up exclusively of former army officers, and they did contain a number of public schoolboys. Is that surprising? Well, if you think back then, you had to pay for your own certificate, uh, your flying certificate, before you could qualify as a pilot. And in today's money, that would be something like £10,000. So you were taking a £10,000 bet on whether you were going to be able to join the Flying Corps. So already you're talking about a fairly exclusive hobby because not many people in those days were going to be able to afford a £10,000 punt on whether they were going to go into the Flying Corps. And let's not forget flying was a very complicated, risky and physically demanding business. So if you were an Edwardian recruitment officer, where were you going to start? It's probably not surprising that you would start with the public schools and the universities. But this start of the war has been seen as the whole of the war and new pilot recruits later would bear little resemblance to the pilots of the early days. And if I give you one example of that, a gentleman by the name of Clement Gilliat. Clement was a young man from Lincolnshire. He uh, he writes on his attestation form that he was a farmer stroke butcher. Well, even that's stretching the truth somewhat because Clement worked in his father's very small dairy farm as a dairyman. So it gives you some idea by 1918 just how far the officer recruits had come and how far removed they were from the idea that they were all public schoolboys. With regard to training myths, a lot of these come from memoirs and what we have to remember when we're reading any memoir is attitudes change depending when the memoir was written. I mean, simplistically speaking, the closer you get to the war or the closer to the war the book was written, the more positive experiences are and the further you get away, the worse they become. And uh, a gentleman pilot called Norman Macmillan wrote his biography called Into the Blue. Now, he wrote the first edition of this in 1929. Broadly speaking, it's a very positive book, positive experience of his flying experience. He liked his instructors. They did a good job in trying circumstances and he was well trained. Now, Macmillan reissued his uh, autobiography Into the Blue in 1969. So now with 40 years of hindsight behind him, and he wrote a very different account. He removed any of positivity with regard to his training and his instructors on this, which gives you just one example of how dangerous it can be to rely on the first-hand accounts uh, with some dependency on when they've been written. And we touched on the point about how dangerous training was. The idea that more than half pilots were killed during their training comes from a book by Dennis Winter, written in the early 1980s. Now, the problem with this statistic is, first of all, it's wrong. Uh, The answer is no, 50% of pilots were not killed in their training. Probably close to half that number is the truth. But uh, Winter's point has been quoted repeatedly throughout the historiography, even by some well-known and perhaps reputable historians even to this day, which which is part of the problem, part of why I'm uh, researching this topic. Which leads me into an embarrassing situation because I actually have done this exactly what you said. So, de- dealing aside my my uh, my admission of guilt, um, what's your what sort of methodologies are you going to use to get over some of the problems that you raised uh, in your last answer? Um, I'm going to use a mix 
of techniques. Uh, first, the recruitment and training systems need to be documented and analysed. And secondly, the lives and backgrounds of the men needs to be explored. So to do that, I've, I've got a wish list of well over a thousand archival files to study, most of them in the National Archives and the RAF Museum, but also in the Imperial War Museum and the little collection up in Leeds. So the sooner the archives open, the better for me. These include around about 250 pilot logbooks. So why are they important? Well, they give me a list of or details of flying hours by pilot by year of the war. So I'll be able to accurately tell you how many hours pilots had before they were sent over the lines uh, to, to attack the Germans. And that will tell us whether it is a myth or not that they were sent to the front with very few flying hours. With regard to the men, I've put together a sample of around 2,000 men of all ranks across all years. Again, where were they from? What did they do? What were their family backgrounds? And where possible, what were their motivations for joining the service? So we'll get a much rounder idea of who the Royal Flying Corps actually were. So let's start with the Royal Flying Corps. What was it? When was it created? And what was its size by the outbreak of war in August 1914? Well, it's fair to say that as soon as man could fly, the military possibilities of flight were clear. Um, Balloons had been used in the Boer War um, in the the early part of the 20th century. But the first time an aircraft was used in anger was by the Italians in Tripoli in 1911. An aircraft had then been used in the Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913. And Britain lagged behind its rivals in this pre-war period in terms of flight. We were obsessed with an invasion threat. This was in some way stoked by Lord Northcliffe, who was an influential figure in the press back then. And Britain really adopted a wait-and-see approach with regard to flight. And that's not to suggest that it was necessarily wrong. Richard Haldane, who's probably best known for his army reforms, was also in charge of uh, putting together the air service back then. And his, his, his belief was it was wrong to go out and buy as many foreign planes as we possibly could because obsolescence was, become, was going to become a, a serious issue. So what he did instead was in April 1911, the air battalion within the army created. This initially had 14 officers and 176 of the rank. But political pressure continued to pile up and following a subcommittee of the Imperial Defence Committee report in November 1911, recommendations were made to create separate air service, one with a military wing, a naval wing, an aircraft factory and a central flying school to train those pilots. And this um, this became reality in April 1912 by Royal Warrant and in May 1912 the Air Battalion from the Army became the military wing of the Royal Flying Corps. To give you some idea of the size, in April 1912, there are only 200 certificates in existence. So only 200 men had been granted uh, permission to fly, if you like, as trained pilots. Now, of those 200, 112 of them were private citizens, and 20 of them were foreign, including some Germans, believe it or not. So yeah, only 54 were army officers. So that gives you an idea of just how tiny the pool was for potential pilots when the Royal Flying Corps had formed. And by August 1914, so the year the war started, we had 146 officers and just over a thousand other ranks. So it was still tiny in relative terms. So how did this organisation change by the end of the First World War? Well, by the end of the war, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, being formed. And that came about in April 1918 by the merger of the military wing and the naval wing to become a new independent service. And by November 1918, we now have 290 
1,000 men of all ranks. So we're talking about over a thousand-fold increase in numbers in only four years of war. So significant, really, really significant increase. Only 25 to 30,000 of these men were officers. And there's some equivalence that you can make between officers and pilots. So you're talking about 20, 25,000 pilots. You then have another 17,000 cadets. So that's men who are going through their flying training when the war ended. But that still leaves you with 250,000 others, non-commissioned officers and men of other ranks. So who are these men of the other ranks? Well, they're mechanics, they're riggers, they're armourers, they're tinsmiths, they're coppersmiths, they're blacksmiths, they're sailmakers, they're drivers. So they're tradesmen, men of other ranks. And uh, it's this latter group which has really been ignored by the historiography. So what were the challenges in recruiting such a large force that expanded so rapidly? Well, the most significant challenge, of course, is that you're trying to recruit in an environment where you're, well, sorry, let's start there again. You're not recruiting in a situation which is in isolation. So you're not recruiting in isolation. The army wanted officers. The army wanted technical men. The munitions industry, of course, also wanted the latter quite significantly too. There's also an expectation in August 1914 that this is going to be a short war. And that has two important connotations for the Royal Flying Corps. First of all, the men and the aircraft, almost all of the men and the aircraft of the Royal Flying Corps sent to France in August 1914. The implication of that is that there's nothing left behind on which to form a training base. And secondly, a number of men, and we don't know how many, technical men were lost to the trenches as recruit as recruiters in 1914 just signed up men willy-nilly. So does this matter? Well, pilot-wise, no, until about 1916. Uh, memoirs are full of disappointment being expressed that uh, would-be pilots were kept waiting by the Royal Flying Corps or just simply turned away. And the reason for this is that losses in the first two years of the war were quite tiny, really. Only 13 flying men died in 1914, and only 86 died in 1915. So they were lulled into something of a false sense of security that they really had enough pilots and didn't need to worry too much about recruiting them. But in 1916, these numbers would swell to over 500, and by 1917, we'd lost over 2,000 men uh, killed in action during the flying. So the system really had to expand very quickly, and very quickly in the last three years of the war. So how did they get around it? Well, they continued to recruit pilots from the army. There were men who were bored with infantry life. There were men who got fed up of the mud and the conditions and thought life would be better in the sky. And a small but sizable minority uh, were signed up from the wounded. So men who had been struck off as unfit for service in the infantry were welcomed with open arms by the Royal Flying Corps. There are men like McCudden who came through the rank. And later in the war, certainly by 1918, direct recruitment had become a tool that the Royal Flying Corps were using uh, for their pilots. And with regard to the men of the trades and the ranks, well, direct recruitment seems to have been the predominant source throughout the war. Newspapers ran uh, consistently, and there was the novel use of cinema. Um, the Royal Flying Corps made a number of films through the war, which would then be presented in theatre halls by officers or NCOs. And then uh, they out would come the recruiting officers, and they would attempt to sign up men there and then, having watched an interesting and jolly film about the Corps. And certainly one of the, the sort of uh, myths in Ireland, uh, where I'm based, is that a lot of Irish men were recruited into the RAF, certainly in 1917, 1918, because it wasn't the British Army. And obviously there were lots of negative associations with the British Army, especially amongst the majority Catholic population. Is there any truth in that? I, I don't know too much about the details specifically about the Irish, but yes, there, there, there is this distinction that the Royal Flying Corps was not the army. There was there was a different approach um, to discipline. That's not to say they were ill-disciplined, um, but certainly they'd like to see themselves as a different breed, if you like, from 
uh, from the army itself. And it is true that the Royal Flying Corps did um, recruit a number of officers. I don't think that is necessarily the case just in the latter years of the war. Certainly amongst the first officers go to France in 1914 are a number of Irishmen, um, a number who are in fact from big aristocratic families in Ireland. So the Flying Corps was already seen as a noble pursuit uh, from the start of the war. And certainly that was encouraged in Ireland um, in latter years. You do see advertisements in Irish papers in Dublin, uh, for example, looking for RFC pilot, perhaps more so than you do in uh, some of the English newspapers. So yes, I think there probably is a little bit of truth in that. So obviously connected with recruitment is the issue of training. So what sort of challenges did the RFC stroke RAF face with training this new sort of huge expanding um, bunch of recruits that they've managed to get into their service? Well, the, the biggest issue is that you're not training in a static world. Um, you're doing this during a technological and a tactical revolution. So the aircraft of 1918, for example, the Bristol Fighter, has very little in common with a Morris Shorthorn of 1914, other than hopefully they both can take to the air. So this has become more complicated for your tradesmen to maintain. But this extra power and speed now means that you have more actions, more aggressive actions that can be taken by the pilot. So aerobatics is now possible, which is important for your fighter pilots. And the aircraft's viability as a bombing uh, machine and in terms of being able to operate some sort of ground cooperation are, are revolutionized. Now, this means, therefore, that you're having to train for a very different set of requirements throughout the war. And it's never en- it's never ending in terms of how it's changing. It's never static. And another challenge they faced was finding instructors. Often they would keep the best new pilots back from training courses to become pilots of new recruits. Now, the issue there, of course, is these guys have got no, no experience either. So the Royal Flying Corps often sent pilots back home to act as trainers. Now, the historiography has sort of hijacked this as an example of this brutal organisation, which took officers away from their rest, uh, burnt out from the front and sent them home to train. Well, actually, this was already policy and it was designed quite sensibly to rotate pilots from the front through the training, back to the front through the training. If you think about it, what they're doing is rotating best practice back into their training facilities as they go. So pilots were bringing home experience, giving it to the new recruits as trainers and then going back out again to to France themselves. But how did they overcome what is certainly a massive challenge? Well, the answer simply is pragmatism. They continue to change their approach through the war. For example, they opened schools of military aeronautics to introduce class-based training first. New examinations were introduced. Qualifications got harder. Minimum hours were increased as the war went on. And new specialist schools, things like uh, fighting schools, bombing schools, navigation schools, photography schools were introduced where specialisms could be trained to the men depending on what uh, service they were going into in the Flying Corps. And new locations became increasingly important. Canada in particular within the Dominions was a very important source of pilots and had a very significant training establishment there. And facilities were also mirrored in the Middle East so that uh, best practice could be shared in that theatre too. And a good idea with regard to training was a good idea regardless of where it came from. So Robert Smith Barry, often seen as saviour of the British pilot system, uh, came along in 1917 and was given the uh, flying school at Gosport to manage. Now, he had two very good ideas. The first one was that we've been far too conservative with how we trained our pilots, and he encouraged them to throw their planes around in the sky and encouraged the trainers to make sure that their trainees did so, with the belief that when they got to France, the best way to have confidence in both themselves and the machine 
was to have having done it in training. And he also had the idea, which seems quite obvious to us today, but wasn't back then, of training the trainer. So coming up with a set, a separate set of criteria that the trainers themselves had to follow so that people received a standardized set of training. Now, the reason I say he's seen as the man who saved training is that Smith Barry as an individual is quite an interesting chap. He was a maverick. He fell out with just about everyone he came across, including his superior officers. And he was quite simply not a man who would have been able to roll out new processes across such a large organization as the RFC was becoming. So there's a story there that's been lost in the historiography of actually how Smith Barry came to be seen as one of the saviors of piloting, uh, pilot training. And that's something I'm going to get into. So with regard... I'm sorry, 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 carry on with your sentence. Sorry, I, have to I was say. just going to say with regard to the, the, uh, the ranks and how they were trained, well, these guys learnt on the job. Um, they uh, would learn from their superior officers, but also they were occasionally sent out to classroom-based training. So the Regent Street Polytechnic, which is now part of the University of Westminster, uh, trains nearly a thousand uh, air mechanics in the theory of magneto, so the electric system that, uh, that allows you to start an aircraft. And also riggers would go to class to learn the theory of flight, which is probably a good idea because if you've got someone who's about to send a pilot off, it's quite nice to know that they actually know why aircraft stays in the air. So it was a mix for the for the ground-based staff of classroom-based training and learning on the job. So in your opinion, how successful was the RFC stroke RAF in actually recruiting and training its personnel to meet its requirements on the battlefield? Well, if we put it this way, by 1918, the Royal Flying Corps and the RAF, as it now become, was part of a successful combined arms operation that won the war. They had achieved thousandfold increase in numbers, and by 1918, we were outproducing the Germans in terms of men and machines. On our training, yes, we did see a pretty impressive process of improvement, but were mistakes made? Almost certainly. And would it have been better in hindsight? Well, possibly, but my, in my opinion, only by changing elements of strategy outside of their control. You've got to remember that we were administering this system in a paper-based world. So even tracking individuals and levels of competence would have been an enormous challenge. So I feel that they did a quite incredible job in a very unprecedented situation. I think they faced a unique challenge in the First World War. So yes, I would say is the short answer to your question. They were successful in recruiting and training their men. And finally, David, where can people learn more about your research? Well, for me, I'll be presenting at uh, some conferences this year, including hopefully at the RAF Museum uh, conference in September. And I'm also presenting a Trenchard lecture at the Royal Aeronautical Society in November. And book-wise, I'd, I'd, I'd also encourage people, the, the official histories is a good place to start. Um, they're a little irritating in that they're very erratically organised, but the first volume is a good read for those who'd like to know a little bit more about how the RFC came to be. And John Morrow's book is a, uh, The Great War in the Air. It's a good account of all the belligerents. And Peter Hart's work are always entertaining accounts of the operational history of the Flying Corps. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2020.
2195. Until next time.